This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Greetings and welcome to another World of UX podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood, and on this podcast, we will talk about any and everything associated with the discipline of user experience, or UX as it's known for short. We'll talk about the history of UX as we've been talking about it. We'll be talking about why UX is important. We talk about careers, job search, hiring practices, methods, methodologies, you name it. Anything associated with user experience is fair game on this podcast. We're going to dive in relatively quick, quickly, but uh, we're spending some time right now. We're talking about the topic of modern UX historic milestones. We're going to wrap that topic up today. But before we uh, move forward, let's a little bit of recap as a courtesy to those of you who are joining us for the first time, and welcome to everyone, especially to our, our first-time listeners out there. Uh, we're going to give a little bit of a recap for them and remind those who did hear last week, and then we'll move forward and we'll wrap this topic up. 1995, the first time that anyone had UX mentioned in their job title. Don Norman, a person who is known as... Uh, a, the grandfather, if you will, one of them, one of the leaders, one of the first people who sort of put their toes in the water, so to speak, with regard to UX and has done some phenomenal works that we still tap into today, most notably Design of Everyday Things, uh, the book that he wrote, fantastic book, fantastic read, and it gives tremendous insights with regard to how we carry ourselves uh, from a standpoint of our operation. In the world of UX. If you have never seen that book, if you've never read that book, please, please, please treat yourself and get a copy of The Design of Everyday Things. And one of the things I should also mention here that I find very interesting and I'm very happy about when it comes to UX, UX knowledge sources have a very long shelf life. Things that were written years ago are still found to have value to us today, even though form factors have changed. A lot of things about the position, the the role, the discipline have changed. But a lot of those old knowledge sources, a lot of those old books by Alan Cooper and books by Don Norman and old heuristic books written by Jacob Nielsen and books about interaction design written by Nathan Shetroff. There are so many old works that still lend themselves to us tremendously today. So I highly recommend that you take a look at those. Don't just, just poo-poo a book off or a topic off because it's old. Uh, that really is not an issue. And I've seen people write reviews about older books on, on Amazon, and they will speak to the fact that the book is old, basically letting you know that they don't understand what we're doing or they don't have experience in this arena. So please don't, if you see, uh, I'll, I'll throw another book out here, plug another book. Uh, Jacob Nielsen wrote a book that changed my life, that changed my career, a book called Homepage Usability. It is an old book, but the, the principles 
and the heuristics that are presented in the book, they're still true today. So the fact that it was written in the early 2000s doesn't negate the fact that you can use it in 2020. So, but at any rate, I digress. 1995, we have Don Norman, who was the first person again to have UX in his title. He was known as a UX architect working for Apple. Something I didn't mention last week, and I wanted to 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 uh, bring it to the forefront of everybody's mind today, because uh, I'm going to talk about the dot-com bust in a moment, but I didn't mention one key element last week in, in the interest of time, just moving too fast, I guess. What's known as the Polar Bear Book, the book covering the topic of information architecture written by Peter Morville and Louis Rosenfeld, and there's a third author, that, that partners with them today, but I'm calling out the early work only. Uh, not that the book is, it's in its fourth edition. It's not that, again, it's not that the information is bad. It's just that I, I'm just citing the timeline. The information architecture book that was written, published by O'Reilly. That book came uh, out, it was published in 97, 98, right, right in there. Everyone had already rushed to the internet. People were already starting to make mistakes, and it was critical that this book be published when it was because people were just going. They wanted to have a presence on the Internet. They wanted to make sure their company was represented. However, a lot of people were running to the Internet, and this is really important to note, without understanding what the rules of engagement were for in getting on the Internet. I want you to make sure you sort of Bookmark that in your mind because we're going to come back to that a little later. The book comes out about information architecture. People are learning about the importance of taxonomies. They're learning about nomenclature. They're learning about how navigations are structured, top-down, things of that nature. So many different topics. How search plays a role in information architecture. Why findability is important and the book Ambient Findability comes out a few years later that, that builds on that topic. These are critical issues. But as usually is the case, when the book Information Architecture comes out, people are just getting their presence on the web, but they're not really becoming educated about how to operate in this new medium. So we experience in the late 1990s what's known as the dot-com bust. Everybody's on the web. But the design that's out there for the most part is not user-centered. Mental models are not considered. They're not important. Expectations, desires, pain points, none of these things are on anybody's radar. So the internet, while everybody runs out there and establishes a presence, companies are not really being that successful. And so that creates a very huge problem that we need to recover from. And that would continue for a few years, not quite that long. We were able to recover relatively well. And I said this before and I say it again. I like to think that the UX profession helped, helped our society to overcome the perils of the dot-com bust by starting to work and make designs more user-centered, starting to take into consideration what are people actually trying to accomplish? What are their goals? What are their expectations? I'll never forget my early years on the internet. And I often tell the story uh, back in the days when we were all dialing up to get online. Some folks out there have no idea what it's like 
to get on the internet with a dial-up modem. And I'll never forget going to a website, receiving a message that said, back, this is back in the 28-8 days, in the 56-6 days, seeing a message that said, please wait. So I sat there and I waited. I waited a good seven to 10 minutes or so. When the wait was over, the only thing I was waiting for was for a dove to fly across the screen. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're sitting and you you have something in mind. You have a goal in mind. You came to a website with, with things on your mind, goals, tasks, whatever it is, and you're forced to wait seven to ten minutes because somebody felt it was important for a dove to fly across the screen before you started looking at what you wanted to do. Is it safe to assume that a lot of people would just abandon the experience and decide not to wait on the on the dove to load? And we know that the answer to that is yes. So through something like that, through that example, we can see this is the problem with the dot-com bust. And I know that's just one example, but things similar to that were happening everywhere. So the dot-com bust takes place. UX starts to ramp up in its operation. You start seeing more and more companies are starting to realize the importance. And, and so we shift down the timeline as UX starts to take center stage. And a lot of companies would rely on the people who tapped into UX first, for the most part. And that was the creative design agencies, your Digitas LBIs of the world. It was just Digitas back then and MRM McCann, Sapient Nitro and and Razorfish and uh, um, BBDO, a lot of different companies that were known for driving and managing creative processes. These companies were for the mass for for these companies. These companies, for the most part, were the companies where the UX-related positions, as we know them today actually lived and thrived. So we moved down the timeline and like you got UX is starting to take center stage, but for the most part, the creative agencies were the hotspots if you wanted to work in that arena. Not too long after that, you see NASA and IBM conducting research that talked about the return on investment, that for every dollar you invest, you could gain anywhere from 10 to $240 in return. When that news gets out, your United Healthcare's, your GEs, Amazon had already been involved, so we don't even mention them. Yes, that's one of the reasons why they're where they are today, because they went to the forefront when it came to user-centered design, and they've been at the top ever since. They they beat Barnes and Noble, they beat Borders, they beat everybody, because they understood the value of having a strong user experience. Well, other companies again are. Uh, companies are starting to get on the bandwagon with it, but history repeats itself. Just like people were running to the internet to have a presence and were not finding out what the rules of engagement were and not finding out what best practices were and not finding out the best way to approach this new arena might be and and without trying to find out how to put your teams together. You're going to have this discipline in-house. You're going to have a team. Well, you know, we'll just hire anybody to do it. You know, uh, Joe Blow over there, uh, he, he's been here for a long time. Just put him in charge of it. A lot of these corporations 
we're starting to, and they still do today. Unfortunately, this cycle that I'm mentioning still happens today because so many companies are still just getting on the bandwagon when it comes to UX. So these companies, just like they, again, rushed to the internet to get their presence, they started rushing to have UX on board at their companies, but they were not educating themselves. They were not understanding how to operate in this arena. And so now we have the first true disconnect taking place in the world of UX. And it's something we're still dealing with again today. So creative agencies have a lot of positions. And this is where we got off last week, where the train stopped. Creative agencies are on board. Corporations are starting to hire. They used to hire the creative agencies, but they started wanting to have this discipline in-house, especially after the research by NASA and IBM became, became mainstream. So now you've got positions popping up everywhere. You've got people hiring all over the place, whether it's for management roles, whether it's for senior roles, whatever it was, positions are everywhere and there's all type of things going on. And the articles are, are starting to be written everywhere about how critical it is for user experience to be a part of your company's operations and, and, and the reports started being published from 2002 to 2010. That's when this this rush starts to take place. But again, you're hiring, you're establishing this presence in your company, but people don't really know what's going on. So how far can that really go? So again, about 2002 to about 2010. About 2012, another shift takes place. Now, you already have people hiring everywhere, but now, and that's what somebody referred to once as the gold rush of UX. Everybody is trying to get on board with regard to UX. But from 2012 to about 2015, something else happens. There are a few colleges and universities that have already reached the point by now that they understand, you know what? This is a growing field. This is something that we should take the time to educate people on and offer programs for. And you start to see more master's programs, more so than undergrad programs. But schools around the country, University of Washington, University of Michigan, Bentley, Kent State University, Syracuse University, Drexel, DePaul, Iowa State, IU, PUI, these schools started establishing programs where people could come and get formal UX education in higher learning. Fantastic opportunity. But that was already going on. That started in many of these schools in the early 2000s. The point I'm, I'm calling out here is that approximately 2012 to 2015, the MOOCs came along. Now, someone may say, what is a MOOC? MOOC is short for Massive Open Online Course. EdX, Udemy, Ed2Go. You start to see courses offered through online resources where for a very small investment, 10, 15, 20 dollars, if you wanted to learn a little bit about UX, you could enroll in courses with a MOOC and you could begin your, yeah, you could say it, uh, UX education. 
through one of these resources. You also started seeing places such as General Assembly and Career Foundry, Lambda, these types of places started to pop up and they were charging more for the educational experience. But the problem was in many of these, anytime you have education, there has to be instructional design. And so if there is a lack of instructional design, and I might as well say this too, a lack of practitioners who can actually shed true light on what it is to do the work and to engage in the arena, without me getting too deep into that on today, because I'm starting to run short on time, that's not an advisable way to go. But I'm just trying to point out the fact that the waters that are already muddy are getting muddier and muddier and muddier. And we get up to 2015, where a lot of the the MOOCs have, their presence on the internet has just grown exponentially. The other educational venues, the non-accredited sources, I have to say it that way, because when I think about higher learning, we're talking about learning through an accredited source. If there is any accreditation taking place at the career foundries and the general assemblies of the world, it's not being done in the same way, and nor are they they having to, to qualify the same way that an institute of higher learning would have to qualify. And that's one of the reasons why you won't see the instructional design played out the same way. You won't see the course involvement and, and the expertise, the, the science behind course design being applied. It simply isn't going to happen. And another reason why anybody can actually graduate from the course on Monday and start teaching on Tuesday. This is unethical, folks. <laughs> that some of you know me, you know how outspoken I am. This is unethical. It's something that should not be done. And so now, from 2015 to 2020, we have what I like to refer to as the wild, wild west of UX. I know people on the internet talk about the wild, wild west of UX. They describe it differently. This is how I am describing it. It's pretty much a situation where now you have companies that are still hiring, still just learning about what UX is, trying to establish a UX presence, don't really understand what's going on. People who are proven really don't get to get hired for a lot of the jobs. People who are starting out, actually, contrary to popular belief, it's easier to hire for a an entry-level person to get hired than it is for a senior person to get hired. We have education is all over the place. The, the understanding of what UX is all over the place. And UX is being diluted with things such as design thinking. Well, again, we'll cover that on another show in the not-too-distant future. There is so much going on in the world of UX. But, folks, hey, we got to face it. That's where we are today. And so next week, that, that's going to end this topic, but next week I'm going to pick up on another topic that lets us know where we go from here and try to make things a little bit clearer for us to understand and to embrace. Folks, that's all the time we have for today. So this is Darren Hood from the World of UX podcast. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.